the real meaning behind your favorite songs. Not just big hits, but iconic culture-changing pieces of art. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Strumming my pain with his fingers Singing my life with his words Killing me softly with his song Killing me softly with his song Telling my whole life with his words Killing me softly with his It is so crazy, the coincidences of life. I said the other day that that was the first song I ever played in a piano recital as a little boy. And then we fast forward like 40 plus years. Roberta Flack and I have the same throat doctor. And so Dr. Gwen couldn't wait to introduce me to her. And I was just, and I tried to tell her that story and I'm just stammering like a moron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she was so gracious and so sweet. Mark Myers is here uh, from the Wall Street Journal on Music and Arts. Uh, Kingpin. Hey, guys. Yet another Hi, anatomy honey. of a song. Uh, that is that song, uh, Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly. This is, is this the longest one you've done? This one was a little long. A lot um, of stuff going on. No, I think uh, it may have, it's a long, it's on the longer side, but there was so much, there was so much there and so much, um, uh, you know, twists and turns and voices coming and going that we ran it a bit we went we went a little bit longer just a little bit it's not, no, i'm not complaining you know yeah. I, I say the more the better yeah it was uh it was it was a wonderful uh, the wonderful interviews and it was a wonderful story um you know that 73 hit by roberta flack wasn't the original version of that song which comes as a surprise to a lot of people um the first was sort of a pop a pop folk rendition that came out only one year earlier. Um, the words and music to the song are written by a songwriting team of Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox. Now, f- you know who, listeners know who Norman Gimbel is. You just may not know the name. He wrote this, the English words to many bossa nova songs. So, for example, you know, you'd have songs coming out of Brazil with Portuguese lyrics, and he'd be the guy to go to to create English language lyrics for these songs, which made them mega hits. Um, let's listen to one of those songs that Norman Gimbel wrote the lyrics to. <laughs> So he wrote Tall and Tan and Young and Lovely? Yeah, he came up with the English lyrics for Girl from Ipanema. That just rolls off the tongue. Too. It's, it's so smooth, isn't it? I don't know if you could write that song today. It might be a little problematic, but... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or just switch it around. Um, the composer of the music, uh, Charles Fox, wrote um, a lot of 60s film scores, which we'll check out, and uh, about 40... TV themes, including this one. So, so 
so 60s, 70s. It's 70s, like so yeah. crazy. How that, many, absolutely. Ugh. How many times was Sonny Bono on this show? Sonny Bono was on this show constantly. Yeah. Oh, I actually honestly. don't remember the show, but I remember that theme song. Right. You know what it was? It was right. just like Love Boat. It was basically just situation comedies about love where on they land. would just like have like a rotating cast of celebrities. But and was Sonny Bono like, was on all the time. Was it like... You know, like sexy, but in like that ridiculous, no. corny seventies no, way, you, you like had, swinging. You had guests. It's like Halston was one of the guests. Halston, you know? yeah. of course. It's, it's like all these people, all these people from Paul the, from Williams the, was on a bunch of them. Yeah, every, everybody who wound up in Studio Fifty Four was on was on these shows. But Charles Fox had a real seventies sound. He's really the god of of sunshine pop. You know, the tele, television sunshine pop, Happy Days. I mean, you name the TV show, Laverne and Shirley. He wrote the theme. I mean, oh, he wrote. Schmiel he wrote Schmiel everything, Schmiel? every single major TV comedy sitcom thing in the '70s and into the '80s. Charles Fox. Um, so, you know, just summing up, when Roberta's "Killing Me Softly" came out in '73, January '73, it went to number one for five weeks. Five weeks at number one. Um, Roberta won Record of the Year. And Best Pop Vocal Grammy with um, Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel winning Song of the Year, which is really the first time single song won Record of the Year and Song of the Year, same year. From a jingle writer. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, Just like Barry Manilow. Exactly. Roberta's version. Or Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah, right. Roberta's version was inducted into the Grammy Hall in 1999. Now, I think the background really is why is Killing Me Softly a big hit? In 73. In other words, as you know, with me, nothing happens in a vacuum. I really, not, you know, things happen, but they happen because stuff lines up. And what are those things? Um, things change in the early, the music changes in the early 1970s. Um, and especially with folk and pop. And both become more romantic, which is really interesting in the very early 70s. You know, the question is why? And let's 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 dig into the early 70s and see why a song like Killing Me Softly might not have done as well three years later or even three years earlier. Um, with the rise of FM radio in cars and cheaper stereo systems, album sales went through the roof. Um, the immediate result uh, back then was a decline of dance music and the rise of these heartfelt songs. Now, again, I'm talking 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. By 74, Philadelphia, other, uh, Miami, dance music surging. It's, we're entering the disco era. But in between Woodstock and um, disco in Philadelphia, um, you've got this romantic period. It's, it's, um, you know, it's pretty interesting. On the folk side, let me illustrate. On the folk side... Again, this is just folk and pop get romantic. On the folk side, in 1971, just as 1971, just 71, you see the release of Carol King's Tapestry. I knew you were going to say that. I'm yeah. so into Tapestry yeah, right now. I, I went know. to see Beautiful a couple of weeks yeah, ago. I know. And that's been totally at the forefront of my mind. That Joni album. Mitchell's Blue. Carly Simon's Anticipation, Cat oh, Stevens' te Teaser and the, and the uh, Firecat, James Taylor's Mudslide Slim, and on and on. These are all romantic folk albums. They're personal. They're either telling stories of, some, of, of the singer-songwriters' personal struggles or personal experiences, or they're romantic. And romantic can also be breakups, but it's all 
a lot of ballads, a lot of ballads. Yeah. Oh, let, let's switch to the soul side in 1971. You get the release of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, Bill Withers' Just As I Am, mm. Stevie Wonder's Where I'm Coming From, Gladys mm. Knight's If I Were Your Woman, and more. And all of these things have that romantic, personal, um, reflective side. Even Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is a romantic is it really a romantic album? It's a romantic album in that he wishes the planet weren't polluted. He wishes people would get along. He wishes. So it's this personal romantic notion of what things could be and what they should be. So the rise of FM and albums, songs with, with the rise of FM and albums, which are longer, right? You know, tracks are longer. Um, songs are slower and they're lusher, more strings more ballads, mid-tempo ballads, slow ballads. So why? You know, the question is why? Why is this happening? Um, you want to take a guess? Birth control pills. I don't know. <laughs> no, so you're <laughs> well, in the neighborhood. You're in the neighborhood. Point. I mean, since the mid-60s, the pill is the pill is the pill is there since the mid-60s. Um, because more couples are making out in cars. Cars now have FM radio. Ah, that's right. Everybody's going out. And it's a place to go where you're away from your parents. Exactly. You can't make out <laughs> at home. So you're in the car. You're learning to drive. You're 16 or 70. You're in the car. And more people are making out. And they're making out in their own apartments. So is this you, Mark? No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like everybody <laughs> in that demographic is getting out of it. The car was a rolling apartment in the early 1970s. It was a place you could go uh, well, remember, to be alone. They, they had couches. The seats the weren't vans. individual seats. Yeah. Right? Right. And you know he had his make-out playlist dot, dot, dot on 8-track. <laughs> <laughs> well, even my first boyfriend, which so I'm going back to the late 80s, like there was that front seat was one seat and you sat next to him with his arm around you and you didn't wear a seatbelt. <laughs> the bench seat, yeah. Well, Yikes. That's, that's, it was in the 70s. Well, bucket seats, uh, the 1970s. But again, it, Floozy. the music is slowing down. Yeah. It's getting lusher because the car now plays this music um, on FM and even not cassette yet, probably toward the mid-70s. But back then, you've got eight tracks and everything's slowing down. Everything's more Easy romantic. listening. And it's, it's easier, yeah. So without the car and without... FM, we might not, and I'm not even trying to be funny, but we might not have ever had Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra. All of it. Matter. Are All cars of it. becoming more affordable? Because I feel like you used to have the family car in the 50s. Are like cars becoming, like, can younger people buy cars? No, what's happening is that parents are buying muscle cars for some strange reason because that's all that's being sold. Some are more modified. But if you look at the advertising for the GTO, for the Mustang, yeah. for any of these cars, they're not aimed at kids. They're aimed at basically parents going through a midlife crisis. Yeah. And that car at night is just sitting there on the driveway and if a kid was smart enough and clever enough they could beg their way into I promise I'll be back at 10 I'll promise I'll be back at 11 and out went the javelin or out went the um, uh, the Mustang out of the driveway and they got to take you know they picked somebody up and went to the Dairy Queen, Dairy Queen or wherever they went Dairy Queen yeah yeah so the point being that as as <sighs> as the car became a place of romance and um, um, making out. The music slowed down, and that's why so much music from this period um, before disco starts to get really slow. Roberta Flex, born in North Carolina, her family moves to Arlington, Virginia. She grew up attending local the, her local Baptist church and started playing piano at nine. Um, Roberta went to Howard University at age 15, really wow. early, yeah, and t to study piano originally, but she soon changed her major to voice. Um, 
um, her studies were marked by incredible discipline and a passion for detail. I mean, she really was driven as as a music person, as an instrumentalist, as an arranger. Um, pian uh, pianist Les McCann discovered her singing wow. at a DC club. Yeah, and he introduced her to Jerry Wexler at Atlantic. Now, Les McCann was a great guy to know if you were an artist because um, being plugged into Jerry Wexler at Atlantic means you were going you were going to get your shot. If you wiped out, it was on you, not on Atlantic Records. Um, as a pianist and arranger. Roberta enters the folk soul scene because she's really folk soul. You know, it's not just, it's not the kind of soul that had come before her. It's not this strong gospel. There's a folk quality to it, right? She could almost be playing an acoustic guitar as she's singing any of her songs. Um, her first album was First Take, and the hit was The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. God, my mother played that into the ground. Right? That Dude. is one of my all-time favorite favorite songs i mean that song is incredible so that's a hit first yeah and roberta and the song win grammys i mean she right out of the gate she's winning grammys with that song and you're absolutely right if you listen to it it's not exactly dyed in the wool r&b at all there absolutely is a folk storyteller almost coffeehouse quality about it perfect merger of folk and and soul I mean, in some respects, it's a lullaby. I mean, it's almost like she's stroking a child's head or, you know, guy's head as she's talk, singing the song, right? There's a very, it's, it's, it's very tender. It's very um, emotional. My mother played this album into the ground, man, constantly. So her next two albums, Chapter 2 and Quiet Fire, were meh. Uh, and pretty lackluster. I mean, they just really had nothing going for whatever reason, I, you know, maybe maybe the production. Um, but to jumpstart a career, Atlantic teams her with Donny Hathaway. Mm. And they have a huge hit with Where is Love, which went to number five. And the song also won Roberta a Grammy. Again, let's listen to it. It's amazing how much Donnie, I was listening to this, how much Donnie sounds like Stevie. Don't oh, you think? Yeah. And they had a string of hits, You Are My Heaven. There's yeah. a couple other duets that were just phenomenal. A big one phenomenal. in 78. What was it again? Um, uh, huge. Back back Together Again. No, it wasn't. Um, it was, it's on the tip of my tongue. But if you just, if if listeners just look it up on Wiki, it's, it's, it's 78, I'm pretty sure. And it was just massive, massive, massive hit. I think it was even bigger than this one. Um, okay, so how does this song come about? Now that we know what was going on in the early 70s, that the soil was perfect for this kind of a song. So where, how does this song, what happens to cause this song? Um in the early 70s, Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel loved the folk pop sound, and they wanted to write hits. I mean, they really loved it. Um, let's, but let's, let's talk a little bit about Fox, Charles Fox, because he's, he's rather important. Um, he studies with Nadia Boulanger in Paris and with pianist Lenny Tristano in New York in the late 1950s. Now, jazz people will know those names. Um, listeners might not. Um, Quin Nadia Boulanger, um, Quincy Jones studied with her, Michelle Legrand studied with her, Lalo Schifrin studied with her. She was a really important 
um, teacher in Paris of arranging, modern arranging, modern jazz arranging. And Lenny Tristano, of course, is one of the founders of cool jazz in the late 1940s. So Charles has an incredible background. He's got a great piano sensibility, great melody sensibility, and he know he can arrange, real, compose and arrange fast, really fast. Um, and so with these great skills, you know, Charles is back in New York, and the, where, the thing he starts doing in the early 1960s is he starts leading a Latin band. Um, there was a lot of opportunity in Latin bands in the early 1960s. The Boogaloo just came out. Um, there's a lot of residual uh, mambo and cha-cha-cha left over. There's a lot of Catskill action. There's a lot of weddings. There's a lot of bar mitzvahs. There's a lot of luck going on that, that calls for this. But let's. But the thing with Charles Fox is the guy was bad. I mean, if you listen to his Latin stuff, it's really incredible. Oh, you didn't mean bad as in bad. No, that's what you see the accent there. <laughs> you mean it's there. 70s, yeah, not sliding bad. It. Not bad, bad, <laughs> but bad, bad. I was yeah. like, really? yeah, No, no, he's really, I mean, you, you listen to these arrangements and they are so incredible. Let's listen to España in 1962. This is Charles Fox leading a band. <laughs> it's legit. Very sex in the city, Lori. It's very sex in the city. <laughs> In fact, he could probably sue them. <laughs> there was so much work for this in New York in the 1960s, whether it was the Palladium and Roseland or Bronx and Brooklyn parties out there. Um, Jewish families, Italian families, um, and Latin families all wanted live music. And uh, there was a lot of jazz guys did a lot of Latin work. Um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating trend in New York uh, in terms of who who would be working these kinds of gigs. Um and then Charles starts to write scores for music. He falls into it um, um, with The Incident. I don't know if you guys know the film The Incident that takes place in the subway train. The entire, almost the entire thing takes place with two bullies beating up everybody in the, in the uh, subway car and only one, uh, Bo Bridges, it's his, one of his first movies, is in a cast. He just came back from the army and he's the only guy who stands up to the bullies. But Charles Fox wrote The Incidental Music and wrote the score for it. Um, and then he got... He got the writing job for Barbarella in 1968, which is an incredible score. Cut the Let's, BS. Let's get to the important stuff. When does he do HR Puff and stuff? <laughs> coming, coming. Well, Barbarella. Let, let's, listen, let's listen to Barbarella. Of course, with Jane Fonda, it's a sci-fi action film. Come on, aren't you going to tell me why it's so important to me? Oh, uh, we already know. Well, I mean, if you, Mark, if he's got to know. If you, if oh, why Barbarella is so important to you? Sh tell me. Well, there's a certain band that <sighs> took their name. From okay, it. all right, all right. Uh, I knew there was a twist. Dr. Duran. Yeah. Okay. Um, we never got into the theme though. We just got the. But that's okay. That's okay. Alex. And, and and he did um, the other film that he the, other, the following year he does Goodbye Columbus the theme to Goodbye Columbus in '69. Um, let's get into that so we can give uh, listeners a taste. I mean, it could be a TV. Yeah. It could be Mary Tyler Moore. Room 222 in color. <laughs> So he's the master of this sound. 
I mean, this when they wanted this sound, they went to Charles Fox. This breezy kind of pseudo jazzy flute. Sunshine. I call it sunshine pop. A lot of some people, other people do too. It's it's pop, but it's upbeat. It's optimistic. It's sunny. It's color. You know, it's um, it's almost like fifth dimension esque. Yeah, and so, and fifth dimension is one of the great sunshine pop bands, really. Um, so he's asked in 1969 to score Puffin Stuff. Yeah. And that's the movie based on the TV series, <laughs> right? Um, but all of a sudden, you know, the songs that you've just been hearing for movies are all instrumentals. Now he needs a lyricist. So he talks to an executive friend at BMI who says, you ought to try Norman Gimbel. Um, I think you guys would be a good fit. Um, so they meet and the pair hit it off and they kind of were looking to do what Burt Bacharach and Hal David had done with Dionne Warwick, which is to find one singer who can get your sound across and have hit after hit with that particular singer. Let's listen to a touch of uh, Dionne Warwick. strikes me about this mark these artists especially of that time were so decidedly not quintessential r&b do you know what i mean yeah. it, it, it really there's just shadings of something else be it folk be it as you say sunshine pop and for the most part a lot of these artists that you heard that were black artists pretty much only only could do R&B. We're only almost allowed to do R&B, but there's just weird wave of these folks that sort of skirt the line. Interesting. It is. I mean, you know, as, as the Beatles and the Stones are really going after preteen girls to get them to buy records and all of these, you know, these pop rock groups, Herman's Hermits, uh, and, and adults, grown-ups are listening to uh, Al Hurt and Louis Armstrong and, Bo and Bobby Hackett. There's a whole big, thick demographic that whose needs aren't getting addressed musically, and that's the young adult. And Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass targets them, and um, Dusty Springfield somewhat. Uh, but there's this—and and Dionne Warwick and Burt Bacharach and Hal David. I mean, they're going after the young adult, the bachelor, you know, bachelor women, batch, bachelorettes, bachelor, bachelor guys, single guys. And they're giving them music they can listen to when they're having somebody over. That is music for the bachelor pad for sure. <laughs> it really is. All right, we're going to take a quick break. we got a lot more to come. He's learning. He's learning. got a lot more to come from uh, Mark Myers on uh, another anatomy of a song. Stick around. You're listening to Feedback with Nick Carter and Lori Majewski. This is Anatomy of a Song. On Feedback, breaking down music's evolution and the role each song played in shaping our culture. All right, tomorrow morning, Lori sat down with Vanessa Carlton. You will hear that conversation. But until then, uh, our good friend, 
Extended member of the Feedback family, Mark Myers of the Wall Street Journal, is here breaking down the anatomy of that song, Roberta Flax, Killing Me Softly on Feedback. So, uh, you know, as we were talking before, you know, Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel, the writers of this song, they are looking for their Dionne Warwick. And they figure if they can get the right singer, uh, they'll have hits um, with what they're doing. So they audition, you know, dozens of singers, and they find their sound in a woman named Laurie Lieberman, um, who is a folk singer um, on the fringes uh, coming up. And they write songs for her. Um, Lori records demos, and Charles and Norman get a deal with Capitol Records for her to produce four albums. For the first album, uh, Lori records nine songs, but Capitol wants one more. Uh, something, you know, that's got a single feel to it, something that they can really get behind and promote for the album. Uh, so they, Norman and Charles have to get back together and figure out what they're going to do. So Norman goes over to Charles's house in Encino, and they start to fool around on the piano, and Norman's throwing out ideas, word ideas. And Norman starts to leaf. You know, he's standing on the curve of the piano facing Charles in his house, and they're going back and forth. And Norman starts leafing through um, his ideas book. Let's give sound effects. Yes. <laughs> So he's, he's, he's leafing through his idea book because all lyricists have phrases that they write down in case to sort of stir up, stir up concepts for songs. And he stops on this phrase and he reads it aloud. And it's, you know, he says to Charles, what do you think of this? Kill us softly with some blues. What do you think? <laughs> and Norman had gotten that from an Argentine, uh, Argentine novel that Lalo Schifrin had given him, and it was a line at the end of one of the, par one of the chapters, um, kill us softly with some blues. And Charles says, well, you know, I dig kill us softly. I think that's a really great contrast, but with some blues, you know, it's like, God, it's really saloony. And, you know, we're in the age of James Taylor like and Joni. Yeah, a little dated, yeah, a little yeah, dated. it's like, you know, you know, back at Joe's, you know, it's just, it just doesn't have his closing time. It just doesn't have, it's more Sinatra, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a singer-songwriter era thing. So Norman thinks and he goes, wait, what about killing me softly with his song? What about that? And Charles loves it. And Norman goes home and he writes the lyrics. Now, at this point, Laurie went to hear Don McLean in Los Angeles and was so taken that she says she wrote a poem. Um, and she claims to have shared that idea, some of those ideas, with Norman. Again, it's Laurie's word. Charles and Norman have always said that's not the case. Um, or Charles is knows nothing about it because he wasn't involved and Norman's not around. He died about a year ago. Um, so uh, there's no way of knowing. And, and she isn't claiming, you know, she said to me, I mean, she isn't claiming to be one of the song's writers and she's not looking for credit. She just, she just wants to be acknowledged as, as somebody who played a role. And again, I, it's impossible to know what's what there, but, um, Later, Norman, whatever happens, Norman calls Charles with the lyrics that he wrote, and Charles takes him down over the phone, and he starts to work on the music. The lyrics came first. Then Charles set, set the music uh, to those words. And when, when he's done, uh, <laughs> this is like killer, I said, so Charles, so what, two hours? 
goes, Mark, I, 30 minutes. It's done in 30 minutes. And, and you know, he goes, you have to understand, I'm, I'm, I'm writing for like, I'm writing for television. I'm writing for the movies. I'm writing all day long and night. It's just going on and on all day and night. So it's not taking me a long time to put it together. Um, but here, let, let's let, let's have the listener listen to um, Laurie's version. This is the very first version. This is the version that Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel wrote for Laurie Lieberman and that she recorded it for Capitol um, in uh, 1971, and then it was released in 72. That's Charles playing piano, by the way. I heard he sang a good song. I heard he had a style. She's got a gorgeous folk voice. And so I, I have to tell you, I, I had never really listened to her version more than like once. But I love, I love the arrangement. I just thought the vocal. You're right. It was, it was almost a little Judy Collins, both sides now to like Richard Harris, yeah. MacArthur Park. Yeah. It's a little yeah. stilted. It's but Joni, I mean, that's what's popular. Right. Both yeah. sides Agreed. now, Joni, and and and, yeah, yeah. and that's tapestry. We're talking about. This. So you could see why they would pick out Lori Lieberman her voice, from that crowd. Her emotions are all in. I mean, you really feel like. Um, you know, she's been hurt, that she's expressing something, that she feels it all the way through to the spine. I mean, you really you really get a sense that it, it, all of it's in. Unfortunately, um, the single didn't chart. Do you think that part of it is an also-ran thing? We already had Joni and Carol, and do you feel like, that is that it? If she had come second? Late to maybe, the party, yeah, yeah. like there's a sense we've heard it already in I, that I, it way? Could, yeah, I think to some extent that, that feeling and that sound... I think yes, and I also think that at this point, this this album's clearly it the the market for this the market for this album are college age women. I mean, without a doubt, that's the demographic, right? And I don't know that they were going to take the needle off of Joni and Carly's albums or James Taylor's albums to really get heavy about it, right? It's a single, and it's not a concept. The album isn't a concept. It's, it's, a, it's a collection of singles that they wrote for her. And a lot of these albums are really large canvases. I mean, they're big works. You know, you can't jump in and out of blue. You've really got to listen to that album from the beginning to the end. So, um, you know, the album doesn't do that well either. But Capitol, you know, to its credit, does its best. I mean, Capitol really got behind that song. They loved it. And um, among the efforts that Capital made was getting it, this was new at the time, but they got it onto the loops on American Airlines. Now, for those who remember, and for those too young to remember, before the digital age, Crazy. Um, when, you when you flew um, back then in the early 70s, you got a headset that was like a stethoscope. And you, <laughs> and, and you, you had a list. There was a card in the seat in front of you, and there were five, roughly five, six, seven different channels, and each channel had a list of about ten songs, uh, or fifteen songs, and each category was different. So it'd be folk, it would be pop, it would be classical. There was no spoken, as I recall, from flying at back then. But each there was it was segmented. Now the problem is is that today you can jump around. Everything's jump around. 
back then, if you heard a song, I remember flying back from Europe and having to listen to that loop over and over again just to hear California Girls. You know, it was like the Beach Boys, California Girls, like you heard it and then you'd have to listen to the whole thing for 45, 50 minutes before you could hear the song again. Um, and that's how these things were going. That's how these things worked. And But if you liked the song, there was no way to jump forward or go back. You just had to wait through all the other stuff. So Roberta's on a flight from New York to LA and she's got the stethoscope headphones in there and she's listening to some music and she hears this. She hears Lori's song that Capital got onto American Airlines and she loves it, you know, but she's scribbling on a napkin. I mean, I, the first time she just hears it and just is, has her hand on her chin and she's just listening to it through. And now she's got to like wait 45 minutes until the song comes <laughs> on again and you can't stop it. And you can't go back. So she's scribbling like crazy notes, you know, arrangement notes and other things because she wants to play with it. But she's writing as fast as she can on a napkin to get it all down and then has to wait another 45 minutes. So by the time she gets to L.A., she's heard it four times and she's made a series of notes back in L.A. She's got very specific ideas for arranging it um, and she makes some significant changes uh, one in particular to this song that you may or may not have noticed. But let's compare the two openings because it's that important that you should hear what she did. That change had a lot to do with that song standing out with uh, with her voice. I mean, it probably would have done just as well if she had left it alone. But one particular change is pretty important. Um, let's let's just hear the opening version again to Laurie's version. But listen to listen to the first line, and we'll cut it after the very first line. Just the listener should just listen to the first line. Then we'll go to then we'll go to Roberta's. Sort of a love is blue thing. I right? I swear, God, I was just thinking that. <laughs> Or it could be uh, in the soundtrack to Love Story. Yeah, very good. Very good. Listen to the first line. I heard he sang a good song. Okay, so that's Laurie's version. Now let's listen to Roberta's arrangement, first line, and you'll hear the difference. Strumming my bed with his feet. She starts with right the chorus. Right out of the gate with the chorus, yeah. She jumps right into the chorus and puts the verse second. The verse that, that Laurie just sang as the opening, that comes after this chorus. She uses this chorus almost as an introduction because in some respects, it's minimal, right? It's, it's listen, put it up a little bit. It's Roberta playing the Fender Rhodes electric piano with basically a church choir behind her. And I love that when, when the choir comes in for the, uh, the harmony in the chorus, it gets almost otherworldly and spooky and reverb. Yeah, yeah. And uh, turn up just a little bit, Alex. What you have also is, I mean, that's Ralph McDonald's two. It has a two-four feel. Her version. One, two, two. One, two. One, two. Yeah, she she absolutely syncopated it. Yeah. As opposed to Laurie's Ralph version. McDonald's beat. He's on drums. Um, no, Grady Tate's on drums, Ralph McDonald's on percussion. Um, but she opens up with that uh, chorus, and I said to her, you know, I said, you, you switched it. You know, it's funny because I, I didn't notice it until I really started studying the song that that had been switched. And I said to Charles, did you write it? And she goes, no, he, we wrote it the way we wrote it for Lori. And, and I said to Brett, I said, why did you switch it? What was the point? And he said, um, 
killing me, um, strumming my pain with his fingers. I mean, it's it's just much stronger. It's it was so, so it grabs you. It just grabs you much much stronger. It's a much stronger opening than than the verse and. That's fascinating. And, you know, the vocal choir, um, you know, the vocal choir is amazing because that sort of sets the stage for what's coming. Um, and, you know, the tempo's faster than Laurie's version. And I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Do you, as as someone who was musically aware at that point, did you, do you remember Laurie's version? No. Okay, because Nick said he hadn't listened to it. I really hadn't listened to it. So it's just, it's kind of a minor miracle that she comes across this in the first place, um, Roberta. Well, you know, capital, like music on the plane was really new, relatively new, maybe a couple of years, maybe 69, 70. It's really with the introduction of the 747 that you start to see, hey, let's put bells and whistles on these flights. Let's, you know, when the 747 came out with that sky sort of a sky lounge where you went upstairs. Right. Um, the 747 was so radical, so revolutionary. It was like instant, you know, instant luxury and on the, wheels. The spiral staircase. Exactly. Which, right, right. Exactly. And, you know, the 747 just like, let's get music on this thing and let's get better screens for movies and, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, in the old days when movies were shown on planes, everybody had to watch it because there was one screen. Well, you didn't have screens on the back of your seats. They were just one scene, and like at suddenly half, you know, when the food was over, boom, the lights went out, and you either watched, you watched it or you went to sleep. Yeah, I, mean, I do remember that. Yeah. Or you listen to music, and the music, um, you know, the fact that they got it onto American Airlines was really a stroke of genius. They probably got a great deal. I mean, I'm sure American with its 747 fleet was just, you know, we'll, you know, we'll pay for it, you know. And probably Capital just gave them everything, and in that bundle was this song, which made not have made it to many ears but in some if way you were flying, the right one. if you were flying you heard it and if right exactly but think about how strange that is i mean you know if roberta had a book to read that day we wouldn't have this song that is synchronicity absolutely right? absolutely and, and and there's something about Lori's version that um there's something about Lori's version that hits roberta um and she you know, she just wants to improve on it. You know, she she wants to put her flavor, her thing on that song. Um, she hears things that she wants to do, and she hears things that, that should have been done and that she wants to do as an arranger. So she's not listening to it as like a, sing, a singer who's got some ideas. She's listening to it as an arranger who sees something and says, if I structure this, if I take it apart and structure this different, and if I bring in that chorus, and I wonder... If we got a different tempo here and just sped it up a little bit, I wonder what that would be like. Um, because she really thought like a producer, really thought that way. I mean, I asked her, why didn't you play piano on that song? And she goes, you know, the the, the Fender Rhodes has a moodier candlelight feel. I mean, it just, it, it's it's the feeling of that song. A piano, you know, would have been a little bit, it would have been a little hard. It might have been a little raucous, but the Fender Rhodes has a much more, a much more soothing feel. Um, Warmer for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, if you're getting away from the folk too. Yeah, and the other interesting thing that she said is that the song itself is is a circle song that it, that it's it's it it could go on forever. Like, you know, it, it's a cycle song. It just goes in cycles, and she ends the song on a sixth. I mean, that's what's really interesting. If you listen to her version, it ends on a sixth chord, 
rather than a seventh. Uh, Laurie's ends on a seventh, but it's, you know, with with his song, I mean, it falls down. It it's almost slips back a little bit. If you listen to that sixth, um, y y it ends the song. It ties it off. You know, if you think of the very last note she sings, it's a sixth, not a seventh, um, which doesn't, which ends it. it. You know it's the end as opposed to it could keep going or fade out. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, Mark is going to continue to take us through the history of uh, aviation. Because <laughs> I, 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 I remember Seriously. Those, I remember the 747. I remember that spiral staircase, you know, just trying to get up and down that thing. It was crazy. All right, more from uh, Mark Myers, another anatomy of the song. This is an extraordinary one. Uh, Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly. We'll continue with that on Feedback. Strumming my pain with his fingers. Singing my life with his words Killing me softly with his song Killing me softly with his song Telling my whole life Feedback returns in just a moment. Digging into the history of the iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Oh, the richness of that woman's voice. And remember, she's coming, she's coming along the same period as Nina Simone, Odetta, Aretha to some degree. Yeah, amazing, yeah, absolutely. amazing stuff. Absolutely, and you know, I figured for our top ten today, what I Ooh. wanted to do is, you know, this song "Killing Me Softly" is not the first of anything, right? It's just part of a genre that is already unfolding, and that genre really starts to unfold in. 1970, roughly 1970, for the same reasons that we're talking about before. But let's hear songs that sound similar that came three years earlier. Now, I'm not saying that they are, I'm not saying Killing Me Softly came from these songs. I'm just saying the feeling of these songs has a history, and that feeling began in 1970. Let's listen to the first one. Uh, let's listen to One Less Bell to Answer, 1970. Wow. See what I mean? It's the same feel. Yes. It's like a stroll. Yeah, I love this song. Don't and you? it's a sad song, too. Yeah. And it's being whispered to you in your ear. There's a confidential quality about this. That was, wait, it wasn't Fifth Dimension. Who was that? I don't remember. This is the Fifth Dimension. It is Fifth Dimension. Yeah. Oh, yeah. see that? Um, let's listen to um, Mavis. I've learned to do without you. This is the all 1970. You gave me my first taste of love. See, it's romantic. It's oh, romantic so soul. I mean, it's just great stuff. And this is a little known Mavis Staples song. Wait, Mark, I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> Oh, man. I love that. That's, I love Mavis. Isn't that great? Um, let's do Dionne Warwick. She had a she had a similar sort of hit in uh, 1970 also. I'll Never Fall in Love. Yep. I was going to say, she's another one. You forget, she had a ton of hits. Yeah, and into the decades, you know. 
This song was so huge in 70. And all this stuff is like the streets of San Francisco, a Quentin Martin production. Yeah. It's almost set up, the Carpenters, you know? It's like just just prior. Um, let's do Aretha's Call Me, which also has the same feel. You know, Killing Me Softly is just an outgrowth, an outcrop of this feel, of this sound. Such a longing in this. Oh, yeah. Good cellos there, too. such a great period and it's all it's been forgotten today it really you know 1970 to 74 is an amazing period for romantic soul and romantic folk all right the great the, one of the towering songs of 1970 which you know really crystallizes everything and sets everything in motion is the next one. Oh man right i mean this is like so expressive and it's just, everything is just out there, right? It's magnificent, it's majestic. Wait, somebody recently gave us a lesson about the, oh, it was you! <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Diana Ross, man. Let's do, um, you're my, this is all 1970, all romantic soul, all female vocalists. You're my everything, Gladys Knight and the Pips. Isn't that a great song? It's a great opening, too. It shifts gears three times. Whenever I hear this stuff, I always wonder how much it must have cost, you know, between studio time. Because these kitchen sink productions, like, listen to that whole string section. Yeah. And it's shifted gears. I mean, if you listen to the intro, can we hear the intro to that again? Let's do the intro again. Listen to how many times this thing shifts. Rhythm guitar. Strings. Bigger strings. Vocal choir. Just shifts right into it. Alright, let's do uh, the three degrees. I do take you. Yeah. Orchestral trumpet section. So Killing Me Softly doesn't happen, you know, just doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of this. This is doing well. This is popular stuff. And they're seeing the trend, the powers that be. Um, let's do uh, Charlene and the Soul Serenaders. Listen to that symbol and uh, bass. You hear the bass and the symbol so clearly on that thing. I mean, they're mixed equally to the to the vocal. 
And finally, let's do the last one. Young ladies, I'm tired. The, the group is that young ladies, I'm tired of running around. With Willie and the Mighty Magnificence on background. Oh, I, that's who this is? Yeah. I, know, I know this song. I never knew who it was. So great, isn't it? Yeah. band is almost like Archie Bell and the Drells. Yeah. I think this was like on Stang or something, you know, it's like great label. It's great. So, I mean, there's so much great music in the romantic genre, women singing it, vocals singing it, but it's a female, it's female driven early on. And then you've got groups that are like Blue Magic and mm. uh, other groups that are uh, using falsetto to almost emulate that, um, but it, it begins it begins with these women, um, and then Roberta Flax, uh, "Killing Me Softly" in 1973. It's a culmination. It's 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 a, another level of building blocks on top of what had begun in '69, '70. Really, can't great. believe you just dropped Blue Magic. <laughs> we have to do a we have to show begin. Pick me up. We have to do a Blue Magic show, right? Hell yeah. Anyway, that's. Uh, that's that's the evolution. That's where it comes from. And uh, of course, you know, Roberta will have would have, I guess, about a year later, seventy four, um, feel like making love, mm. and which is really one of the first disco beats. If you listen to that beat, it's one of the first shuffle beats. That's Ralph McDonald also. Wow. Yeah. Put it on him today, Mark. We haven't even mentioned the Fugees. Yeah, I was going to oh, say. Oh, yeah, like, the Fugees. How many, right. how many times do you think this song's been covered? It's been dozens. Right after right after Roberta was Ann Murray. <laughs> and on that <laughs> note, Ann Murray. have a good day. Aunt Murray. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>